Well, this morning we're going to continue our look at the sovereignty of God from Psalm 145. We started last week and just barely got going, and this morning we'll, we'll leave you wanting and we'll be able to finish up eventually, and if the Lord wills, he's sovereign, so if he wants it to happen, it will happen. It was about a year and a half ago when the United States was attacked by terrorists, something that really hasn't happened to the degree that it had happened then on September 11th. And uh, the planes were crashed into the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, and one crash in the field. And it was interesting to see people's responses, uh, the, the shock and the horror and the wonder of why is this happening? But more disturbing was to see how Christians, or at least professing Christians, responded in, in great anxiety and terror and, and, uh, and wonder, asking, you know, why would God let you know, 2,795 people die in a single incident? And it was a little disturbing to me when I thought, well, don't you read your Bible? You know, why did 58,000 people die in the Vietnam War? Americans. There was 1,210,000 people who died in the Vietnam War altogether. Why did that happen? Why did God let that happen? Or we could look at the yearly death toll... In the United States alone, which runs about 2,400,000 yearly. A lot of times we think of war as these times where just masses amounts of people die, and it's true. But think about it, that five times as many people die every year in the United States that died in the Vietnam War. Why does God let that happen? Or why did 10 million people die in World War I? Why did 58 million people die during Stalin's regime in Russia from 1924 to 1953? Or why did God allow 84.6 million people to die in World War II? Where was God when all that was happening? Where was God when cities were bombed and families were blown up and children were slaughtered? Where was God when the city of Pompeii was covered with fire and brimstone and smothered in an instant and all those lives extinguished simultaneously? Where was he then? Where was he in June 6, 1990 when 50,000 people died in the Iran earthquake? Where was God when the greatest disaster of all times, the Noatian flood, came upon the earth and all the people except Noah and his family were killed? Where was God? Well, we read it this morning. Let me remind you where he was in all these instances. The Lord sat as king at the flood, yes, the Lord sits as king forever, according to Psalm 29.10. He was king. It was all part of his plan to have people die. And when we think about that, that's kind of scary. We think, well, 
but weren't those things evil? Some of you may be thinking, but you still haven't answered the question, how could God, this good God that we serve, allow this to happen? And we can give the basic answer is God will get the most glory for himself by allowing these things to happen and many more just like them. Wait till the tribulation comes. You see more people die. Others, others wonder in their hearts, God is good. God is loving. He's compassionate. He's, he's merciful. And yet all these People suffer and die these horrible deaths. How could God be sovereign? How could God let all these good people just die? But to ask such a question really reveals a false understanding of people and God. In our society, we we talk about good people. You know, they're the law-abiding citizens and taxpayers. They work hard, take care of their family. They're, you know, honest. They're, they're, you know, quote, good people. And then in our society, there are the liars and thieves and rapists and murderers and drunkards and fornicators and adulterers and and, uh, all those people who are puffed up with pride and conceit and who get caught. Because if they don't get caught, we don't know about them. They're the, quote, bad people. And comparatively speaking, we may be, quote, better than the bad people. I mean, we are glad to know that there are people worse than us because it makes us feel better. And we often point out that certain people are worse than us because it does make us feel better. I mean, I'm glad I'm not like axe murderer so-and-so. It's like the Pharisee who said, you know, I am glad I'm not like other men. But the problem here is, is that if we're going to compare ourselves, we don't compare ourselves with the axe murderer or the next door neighbor or some famous criminal. We compare ourselves with an infinite, holy and righteous God. How good and innocent are you or is anyone else compared to a perfectly holy and righteous God? Paul in the first three verses, the first three chapters of Romans tells us about all men. He is going to present the gospel. So the first thing he has to do is he has to present why people need salvation. So he condemns the Jew. He condemns the moralist. He condemns the Gentile. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, he sums up for us exactly what everybody is. He gives us a profile of all men. And this is what he says. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become useless. There is none who does good. And in case you're thinking, well, I know one person, then he adds, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. A bad sight. 
Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps, that is poisonous snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is you. This is me. This is everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no good people compared to God. Compared to your neighbor, compared to some other guy, yeah, you might be good or a little better. Compared to God, you are thoroughly wicked and corrupt. God has never allowed any innocent person to die except for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the only innocent person who didn't deserve to die, and yet he voluntarily died so that through faith in him we might have eternal life. All the rest deserved it, and they deserved it sooner than they got it. People don't deserve a chance to be saved. They don't deserve the gospel or a chance to hear the gospel. Salvation is by grace. We say it all the time. It's by mercy. We say it all the time. Mercy is undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor. And then we say, well, they deserve a chance to hear. Well, who says? You have to realize that there are no innocent people who have died. All have been guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And they have received better than they deserved in this life, however long their life might have been. Though you may not have committed every sin to every degree, you have committed every sin to some degree. If you are angry, you have committed murder. If you have lusted, you have committed adultery. Oh, you haven't done every degree of that sin, but you've done it. You break one law, you break them all. So we're all guilty. We're all sinners. So don't deceive yourself and delude yourself into thinking you or anyone else is a, quote, good person because compared to an infinite holy God, you're not. I'm not. No one is. Now, I put that out there because this is something that gets into the way when you're discussing the sovereignty of God. This, well, there's good people. No, there isn't. Well, how about the innocent people? No, they aren't. So... We'll get that out of the way. But last week we started looking at the sovereignty of God and we began to look at the sovereignty of God and we found some interesting things, some encouraging things, maybe some scary things. We learned that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He has all power, authority, and dominion to exercise his will. He has been, is, and will be ruling over all his creation, all the universe, and everything that happens all the time, every moment. And if... You were not here last week. You need to get the tape because we go into that or the CD now or listen on the internet and we've got options. But if you weren't here, you need to go back because some of the things I'm going to say are based upon what I said last week and I don't have time to go talk about what we talked about last week because time is short. But we learn that God is totally sovereign, that he is in control. And we found out, first of all, that God is sovereign. As we looked at Psalm 145, verse 1 just says right off the bat, God is king. That is, he has authority, power, a kingdom, subjects. He has everything, all the makings of a king. He has it, and he has it all. We also learn in verses 5 through 12 of Psalm 145, that God is majestic. 
Majesty or being majestic is to display a royal splendor. We saw in verse 13 that God has dominion, which means he exercises his sovereign will. We saw in verses 11 through 13 that God has a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that he rules over. So we know that God is a king, a sovereign king, a sovereign majestic king, a sovereign majestic king with dominion, and a sovereign majestic king with dominion who has an everlasting kingdom. And we settled that. We looked at many scriptures. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, everything is under his control. Now, we also looked at many scriptures which clearly teach that God is not only sovereign to every degree and over everything, but that he has a will, and we just hinted to it, that he wills everything to be, and nothing can thwart his will. And so this morning, we want to talk about, in more detail, the will of God in relationship to the sovereignty of God. The will of God is always discussed under the sovereignty of God. First, God is sovereign. That is his position of authority, power. And then, as a sovereign, he wills things or acts. Then underneath that, you have the will of God, the decree of God, providence of God, concurrence, government, all of these terms that you might not know now, but you will. And today we want to look at the decree of God, the absolute will of God, or the declarative will of God, and the prescriptive will of God. And we'll just introduce the will of God in relationship to evil. This is a heavy one. Now before we get into this, I want you to make a commitment in your mind, in your heart, that you are going to believe what the word of God says. Most people have problems with the subjects because they will not submit to the Word of God. It's not that the Word of God is unclear, it's that they are unwilling to submit to the Scriptures. That's the problem. Now we're going to say some things and we're going to look up some verses and you may be thinking to yourself, this, they, they just can't mean this. Well, they do. The real problem is, is you can't understand how they could mean that. Because it's different than your perception of God. But I hope you make the commitment that whatever the word of God says, you're going to believe, even though you may not understand it, you can say in your heart, this is what the word of God says. I believe the word of God, even though I don't understand it. That is a good position to have. The bad position would be to, well, I know that's what the word of God says, but it couldn't mean that because it makes me feel uncomfortable or I don't understand how that is, so I'm going to reject part of the scriptures. That's a bad thing to do. So let's look at the decree of God. Uh, A lot of times when you're reading theology books, I don't know when you you read big, thick, systematic theologies. (laughs) I have, last night I was sitting around with these stacks of systematic theologies, and I don't know, I don't know if there's a rule that if you write a systematic theology, it has to be a thousand pages, but they're all that big. And um, it doesn't matter what they're talking about, they're all a thousand pages. So I'm, I'm looking through sections and reading things over that I'd read before earlier in the week, trying to sort everything out. And, and uh, you just find out that theologians have a lot of terms, and I'm going to be throwing terms out at you. And I don't, I don't give you these terms so that you think that I know a lot. Um, I'm giving you these terms because these are the terms that you have to use if you're going to discuss the issue. So we're going to talk about decree or decrees. 
Usually they use the term decree in the singular to describe the totality of God's plan. Everything God has planned that will come to pass is his decree singular. When they're talking about individual portions or, or situations within his overall plan, they often use the plural decrees, just so you know that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'll give you some definitions, some technical, and then we'll move towards the simpler ones. And the technical ones, I'll stop at each line and kind of explain to you in simple terms what they mean. But let's talk about God's decree as defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It is this. His eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will. Now, right there you learn a couple things. God's decree is his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will. In other words, it's what God by himself has decided to do. And the word eternal tells us that he did it before anything was created. It goes on to say, whereby for his own glory. Here's the motive of his decree. For his own glory. So we know that anything that happens is all for the glory of God. Somehow, in some way, it's going to give God glory. We may not understand how, but it does. He goes on to say, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Which means, before creation and eternity pass, by His own will, for His own glory, He has decided what's going to come to pass. That sounds a little deterministic, doesn't it? Well, think about that. Here's another definition. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a little more detailed one. I like this one because it adds a few things. The other one doesn't. It says, God from all eternity, there's before anything was, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Now we have wise and holy, which means without sin, wise Because he's infinitely wise, that means it can't be improved upon by his perfect wisdom and his perfect holiness and the counsel of his own will, nothing influenced it, freely and unchangeably, which means you cannot alter what he has decreed in eternity past, ordained, and here's the scope of what he has ordained, whatsoever comes to pass, which means everything. Yet so, as thereby, and I love these technical, yet so, as thereby, sounds like a legal document, doesn't it? Neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but he's not responsible for sin, nor does he violate the will of the creature. That is, we still have freedoms, we still have choices, we can still make choose between this or that. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes, and second causes is what we are, we'll explain that later. Second causes, that is, God creates us and then we act. Neither is the liberty our ability to choose or contingencies, possibilities, taken away, but rather established. And you're thinking, now Jack, how could that be? That was an easy definition, wasn't it? Here's William Ames. You'll praise God for William Ames after hearing that. 
William Ames, one of the champion theologians of the American Puritans, defined God's decrees as, quote, his firm decision by which he performs all things through his almighty power according to his counsel. John Feinberg, in his 900-page pamphlet on the doctrine of God called No One Like Him, it's a great, great book. His decision concerning whatever will happen in our universe. That's pretty simple. Now when you look at all these definitions, and I look through all of them, I put all the pieces together, this is what you get. And you'll be able to understand this because this is in English. One, God planned everything before time began in eternity past. Two, God counseled within himself the Trinity and did not decree anything based on anything but himself. For instance, he did not look into the future to see what men would do so he could then line up his decree with what he saw men doing in the future. He did not do that. Three, God decreed everything for his own glory, which means that the purpose of everything is the glory of God. Four, God's decree is fixed and doesn't change. Five, God's decree does not make God responsible for the sins of men and angels. Six, God's decree does not make men robots, but determines that they be free to exercise those freedoms granted to them and make and be responsible for their choices and actions. And seven, God was able to decree everything from eternity because he is all-wise and all-powerful. Then you have the simplest definition from Jack Hughes, obscure pastor in Burbank. His decree is his all-encompassing plan for absolutely everything that has, is, or will happen. By all-encompassing, I mean all-encompassing. Absolutely means everything all-encompassing. We talked about last week how every flip of the coin, decision of the Lord. Every beating of a fly's wing, every motion of the amoeba, the movement of the planets. Big, small, it's all part of God's decree. That's what we mean by all-encompassing. So someone asks you, what's God's decree? You can tell them, well, it's the plan he made in eternity past for everything that will ever come to pass. So that's pretty easy. Now, here comes the problem. And you're already thinking of the problem because everybody thinks of these things. Unless you're sleeping. Now, when you speak of God's sovereignty and his eternal decree, you instantly begin to ask yourself questions like, well, if everything is part of God's decree, then what about sin and evil? If God is totally sovereign and has willed whatever comes to pass, does he will sin to come to pass? If everything is planned by God before time in creation, then how do I have a choice? If I do have a choice, then how could God plan it? If I am responsible for my sin, then why isn't God responsible too, since he planned and decreed that sin be a part of my life for his glory? And if he didn't plan it, then how could it be part of his absolute decree? And you're thinking, why did we come this morning? (laughs) And that is why we are talking about this very subject. It is the greatest theological topic of all the Bible. 
Theologians have just dove into this with all their might and they still can't figure it all out. I don't even pretend to tell you all there is. You would be scared to know what I'm not telling you. There is so much that could be said. But yet this is exactly what people want to know. People are dying to know these things. And you're reading in your Bible and you come upon some statement that says, you know, um, does not both good and evil come from the mouth of the Lord? And you go, I don't know what that means, but I'm reading onwards. I mean, it's scary. You read that God is sovereign, he's king, and then all this evil happens. You're wondering, I wonder how that works. Well, let's move on. And most pastors won't even address the subject. Because, you know, they're afraid it's going to hurt somebody. Listen, there's nothing in the Bible that's going to hurt you. Or else, the reason they don't address it is because in their preaching, they have preached contrary to the sovereignty of God. And when they begin to study the sovereignty of God, they realize that their preaching doesn't match up. And if they were to teach on it, they would be found to be wrong. So they avoid it. And then people just live their lives wondering, I wonder, wonder how this works out. We're going to try and answer some of these questions for you. We're going to jump right in and we're going to answer some of these hard things. Not completely, but hopefully we will understand some of it. But we have an absolutely sovereign God who has an absolute decree, which means that he has a plan from all eternity, everything whatsoever that comes to pass, even junior hires. <laughs> now let's spend some time looking at the will of God. The first thing you need to do when you look at sovereignty and then you look at God's will, you have to ask yourself, what is the will of God? And there are statements such as, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or you have statements like, you know, my will will come to pass. My purpose will be established. A lot of times you read verses like that and you make no distinction between God's will. You, don't, you never ask yourself, most people don't at least, is, are there different kinds of God's will? Well, yes, there is. And that's what I want to explain to you now. There are two general categories of God's will, and there's even subcategories of these, but I'm not going to do that because it would hurt you. But, but here's the two general categories, and this will help you when you're reading a passage that seems to be strange. You can look at this passage and ask yourself, what kind of will is this? The first kind of will we want to look at is called God's declarative will, sometimes called his secret will or his absolute will. Now, it is called secret because we don't know all of all of it, we just know a portion of it. You see, if God has a will and determines whatsoever comes to pass and it's all-encompassing, well, we don't have every single thing here in the Bible. Every single circumstance of your life couldn't even fit in a Bible, let alone a whole volume of them. So most of what God has will is unknown to us. That's why it's called secret. It's declarative. They call it that because it's what God declares will be. That's why it's often called his absolute will. For an example, I want you to turn to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. This is the story of Sarah and Abraham. They're both old. They've got one foot in the grave each, maybe one foot and a half a foot. They're close to the end. And that God has promised Abraham 
in his old age that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham has tried to help God out by becoming a polygamist with Hagar. Sarah encouraged him to do that. So God shows up with a couple angels, the angel of the Lord, and two other angels to tell him some things. Look at verse 9 of Genesis 18. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Now we're going to find out here that the angel of the Lord, who is God incarnate, is standing there. Got a, a premonition of Christ before he became flesh. And I wouldn't say God incarnate, that was the wrong thing to say. Uh, a theophany, um, a, an appearance of God, there we go. Um, and these two other angels, and he's speaking to Abraham, and behind him he says, he says where's your wife? Sarah in the tent and so Sarah is in the tent she's kind of looking on listening you know out of the way not dealing with men issues and you know waiting to serve them and this is what is said verse 10 he said I will surely return to you at this time next year and behold Sarah your wife will have a son and Sarah who was listening at the tent door which was behind him now Sarah and and, and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This people is God's declarative will. Look at verse 15. Sarah, or, or 14, is, um, Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, and said, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And gave her this rebuke. Now, what was the problem with Sarah's laugh? Well, the problem was, is that when God declares that something is going to happen, how often does it happen? All the time. He is the God, according to Titus 1-2, who cannot lie. He said, Sarah, you're going to have a son. She's like, oh, sure. Why did you laugh? Oh, I didn't. No, you did. Now that's bad, you know, when God knows everything, you can't say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. And so he rebukes her because her lack of faith in what God had said was an insult to his sovereign decree. We read in Job, oh, by the way, she did have the son, we all know that, you go to Genesis 21 and find that out. We go to Job 23 where Job said, and we looked at this last week, 23, 13, and 14, but he is unique speaking of God and who can turn him. And the applied answer is no one can turn God from his way. And what his soul desires that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are within him. Could anything have stopped Sarah from having a son. No. Could she have died? No. 
She was immortal until she had a son because God said, you are going to have a son. And when God makes a declarative statement like that, it happens no matter what. Tells Jonah, you're going to preach to Nineveh. No, I'm not. I'm going on the ship. I'm going away, going in the water, eaten by the fish. Still preaches to Nineveh. Because God said, you're going to do this. And he did. And even though you may not understand how God's going to do it, he does it. And he never fails. He always accomplishes his purpose and no one can turn him from his way. We read in Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases he does in heaven and earth and the seas and in all the depths. Isaiah 46.10, and this is the prophecy um, right on the heels of the prophecy of Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia, the Medo-Persian empire who allowed the Israelites to return from captivity. After they spent 70 years there. You know, Daniel, his buddies, all that stuff. They were in Babylon. Now, before Israel went into captivity, 150 years before Cyrus was born, Isaiah prophesies what the Lord will do. And he says, he is the God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's what God does. And guess what? 150 later, Cyrus is born. He becomes the ruler. They conquer Babylon. He lets the people go back. Why? Because God decreed it. To be so. No one can stop God. No one can thwart God. No one can turn God. No one can hinder God. No one can change God's eternal plan. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 19? In Luke 19 is this account of the triumphal entry and they're all coming in and you know the, all the people are, are lauding Jesus and the palm branches and they're, 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 um, they're crying out Psalm 118.23 you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And the disciples seem to be embarrassed by this or they're worried by this. Maybe they're thinking you know, Jesus is going to get thrown in jail and they are too because you know, they're calling him the king and everything. And so they're, they're fitful and they tell the Lord, Lord tell him to stop and Jesus looks at him and go oh if these stop then the stones will cry out why why did he say that because God had declared that the triumphal entry would take place that that would be said as his son entered into Jerusalem and if the people stopped the stones would say it because it had to happen it was part of God's declarative will we see the same thing in relationship to salvation you can turn to John 6 John chapter 6 see a lot of people like some people say well God's not sovereign at all and other people say well no God is sovereign he's just not sovereign over salvation the correct view is God is sovereign over all look at John 6 John 6, verse 37. Jesus, Jesus compare himself to the manna which comes down out of heaven. 
Of course, the manna gave them life. Jesus gives them life. There's a parallel there. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, now notice this. You can circle that first little word there, all. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That verse tells us that all, every, and each person who, who the Father gives to Christ come to him, and he doesn't cast them out. Look down at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. In other words, this is the Father's will. That all, you can circle that, that he has given me, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, when you look at both of these verses, this is what you get. All that the Father gives to the Son are not rejected, but received. They are never lost, and they are resurrected and glorified. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 65 where Jesus reminds them of what he said in verse 44. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You put all these together and what do you have? You have this. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. If the Father gives them to Christ, he draws them to Christ, they come to Christ, they are not rejected, he loses none of them but raises them. People, that is God's decorative will to save absolutely certain people. That is called God's, here's another five cent term, his efficacious will. That means nothing can stop it. If the Father gives you to the Son, you come, you are not rejected, you are not lost, and you get raised up. If the Father does not draw you, you do not come because you cannot come unless he does draw you. And if he does, you will come, you will be saved, you will be resurrected. We see the same thing in Acts 13.48 as Paul and Barnabas are preaching to all these people. They're preaching the gospel. And in Acts 13.48 it makes this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And now here is just the absolute clincher statement. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, God had declared certain people to believe then, and they did. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, where Paul says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now listen to the sequence here. And listen to who is doing the what. These whom he, that is God, predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Another name for salvation. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You have God calling people. You have God saving people. You have God glorifying people. What you don't find in that passage is you or me. Except as an object of what God does. 
God is sovereign. He has an absolute declarative will, and it is here that we see in the area of salvation alone, that he is sovereign. I picked that out because a lot of people are fine with the sovereignty of God until it comes to salvation. So, we have God's absolute will, his secret will, his decorative will, and you need to know this about it. We have nothing to do with it. God doesn't even tell us most of what it is. I mean, we have a little glimpse of prophecy here. We know those things are going to come true, absolutely. But other than that, we don't know what most of it is. You don't know what God has planned for your everyday life, every minute, every moment, and every circumstance around the world. You don't know that. But he does, because he has planned it. It's part of his decree. And so you are not responsible to fulfill God's absolute decree or his declarative will. For instance, God predicted that the Messiah would betrayed, be betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver, right? Zechariah. But listen, when Judas was betraying Christ, he didn't think to himself, okay, let's see, this is a good time. I mean, Jesus is getting pretty powerful. I think I will betray him now. And I think I'll go to some leaders and lobby for 30 pieces of silver. And so he went and talked to him and they said, you know, how about 30? That way we'll line up with Zechariah's prophecy. Is that what happened? No. No, that's not what happened. Judas betrayed Christ in his own will. The Jewish leaders offered 30 pieces of silver on their own will. And Jesus was crucified at their hands with evil intent. And at the same time, they fulfilled what God had decreed. You're asking yourself, but Jack, how can that be? It's called the doctrine of concurrence. We're going to get there at another day. But just remember that God has a certain kind of will revealed in the scriptures that is absolute and definitive. And when he says something will happen, it always does, just like he says. Then he has another kind of will. Here's the next kind of will. His prescriptive will. What he prescribes. What is written in the word of God as the will of God. God prescribes or gives us in the Bible what he wills us to do. Last week we picked on, you know, a granddaddy sin of anxiety. And we read in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious for anything. And yet, are we ever anxious? Well, yeah, well, it's God's will that we not be, so how come we are? Well, if you read into that, statement there it's the absolute decorative will that you not be anxious then how many of us would be anxious well none of us because god would make it that we would not be anxious but he says do not be anxious because this is his prescriptive will it's what he desires or wishes it's revealed in the scriptures and what's interesting about his prescriptive will what he prescribes for us to do or not do in the scriptures is we can go against it we can cross his will we can thwart his will for our lives by disobeying and sinning we cross what god has said and this is why some have called it what god wishes or desires Now, in relation to salvation, God prescribes that all men everywhere repent. Acts 17.30, for example. The call to salvation is universal. He says everyone needs to repent and believe, but how many repent and believe? Some. And who are those who repent and believe? 
those whom God has decreed to be saved, absolutely. And the reason it is so important to understand these two different categories of God's will is if we don't, then we get confused. We get confused because we read certain texts and we go, well, this seems absolute and God's sovereign and, and how, come, how come God says he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And, and, and why does you know, 1 Timothy 2, 4 say God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and yet they're not all saved and they don't all come to the knowledge of the truth? What is going on? If nothing is impossible with God, then why doesn't he save everybody? And the reason we have problems is because when it says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, we insert in there that desire, we insert God has a declarative will that all men come, be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. When we do that, then we have a problem because not all men are saved. And now God has either lied to us or he is not sovereign and then he's not God and there's a chain reaction problem. But no, his desire is different from what he has declared. So we have that. Keep those two different categories of God's will in mind. God has an all-encompassing plan or decree for everything that will happen. Within the absolute decree, he has also prescribed what he wishes or wills men to do or not do. And he gives men the freedom within his overall decree to choose to obey or not to obey. And you're thinking, well, Jack, how does that work? Well, I don't know. I'm just up here preaching. But here's the granddaddy problem of it all. We're going to give you this to chew on, and in three weeks we'll be back. Here's the granddaddy problem when it comes to the sovereignty of God. Why does a perfect, holy, just, and righteous God allow evil to exist? If God's absolute decree is all-encompassing, and it is, and his will is perfect, and it is, and his wisdom is perfect, and it is, and God does not sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin, then how is it that he decrees all things and yet is still not responsible for sin if sin is part of his ultimate decree? That's the big question. That is the granddaddy question. And we could give the simple answer, God will get more glory for himself by allowing it to exist, sin to exist, by decreeing it to exist. And you think, well, how is that? Well, do you know you would not know anything about God's mercy or his grace or his long-suffering or his justice or his wrath if there was no sin? Sin puts on display many of the attributes of God. But you're still asking yourself, but how? How could he not be culpable for sin if he has decreed it? You know, God, in the moment Eve was lusting after the fruit, could have struck her dead and cast her into hell. Right? Yeah. Or God could have, the moment Adam was tempted by Eve, uh, struck him and her down. Or he could have, before that, when Satan was rebelling in heaven, just cast Satan into the lake of fire. And put an end to it. But he allowed it to happen, knowing it would happen. And he had the power to stop it, but he didn't. Why? To get more glory, but how come? How could he not be culpable? That is the big question. But let me just ask you some simple questions you know the answer to. Then we'll read a scripture and we'll close for now. And then you can just mill on this. Next week, Ken Ham will be here with answers in Genesis. 
and the next week after that, the missions conference. But let me just ask you these questions here. Does God know all things? Yes. Does God know all things before they happen? Yes. Is God all-powerful and can he do all things? Yes. Is God all-wise? Yes. Has God declared the end from the beginning? Yes. Since God is all-sovereign, all-powerful, and all-wise, is there any way that God's eternal plan or decree can be improved upon? No. Does God commit sin? Or does he tempt anyone to sin? No. Now you're ready to do your homework. Think about this for two weeks. If you can't handle it, you're getting brain overload. If you're getting tormented in spirit and you're thinking, I I just can't figure this out. I just don't know the answer. I just don't understand how it could be true. Then meditate on this scripture. Romans 11, verse 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we're, we're amazed. We're, we're scrambling to even figure out what your word teaches. But Father, we know your word teaches certain things and we wonder how they could be true. Father, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are all powerful. We know you know everything happens before it does and you have decreed everything and yet you your decree allows for men and angels and demons to have certain freedoms and choices. And Father, we don't know how that all works, but we know it's true. We've seen it in your word. And Father, I pray that each of us would meditate on these things because it's important, because it's in your word. And Father, if we find ourselves despairing and wondering why, may we fall back on your word again and remember the depths and the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways to trust you and give you glory. Let you be God and let us be finite. We pray this in your name. Amen.